To see examples of what we talked about on this episode, along with further information, go to bunchofdorks.com. Welcome, everyone, to Two Dimension Podcast. The comic book podcast with no direction. What's up, everybody? You know that song. You know this voice. It's your boy, Rook. Joining me, as always, is the man in the mirror, Mr. Don Moore. And I don't like what I see. (laughs) (laughs) And our guest, returning again, is the amazing Ryan Clater. And I'm asking him to change his ways. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. (laughs) Ryan, dude, you are just killing it right now. You So, your new Kickstarter, Mirror Drawings, a meditative art book <clears throat> by Ryan Clater. You are like 420% funded. You've hit all your stretch goals. Man, you're killing it. It's 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 going really well. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, and well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me back on the podcast. It's awesome seeing and talking with you guys a couple times in the same year this is really yeah. fun for me and i i'm here as part of the mirror drawings book launch tour and i it, it's not as big as my last one as a hunter's tale by design and when i was putting this tour together i was really kind of like cherry picking you know who did i who do i have a good time with who do i have a good time talking with and thank you, you you guys were really super top tier. I just remember smiling the whole time and having such a good conversation with you. And even now, it's like we we don't even say hi. We just start talking about stuff. We've been talking for the past several minutes before the tape started rolling, the tape, the digital audio, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's so good to be back. So thank you for having me back. And I'm so thankful to see you guys after hurricane ian i know that was bonkers for you so i was trying to check in with don as that was going on and making sure you guys are okay so it's great to see you guys with power and with a house and everything we got lucky we got severely lucky um i'm sure everybody's seeing the scenes down in fort myers and everything uh yeah um Super lucky. We're very, very, very thankful right now. I mean, yeah. it could have been very bad. So, yeah. thank you for that. And you know, it's uh, it's wild to think like one of my priorities this year, and I still haven't done it, is to move my comics in the bottom shelves up yeah. for flood possibilities. And yeah. I still have not done that. And I'm just, yeah, I'm looking at this room that. Houses my comics going. Good lord, I need to clean this. <laughs> it's it's like backing up your computer. You hate to do it, but it's got to be done. <laughs> yeah, I tell yeah. you, it's just it's it, it's really wild. It, you know, <laughs> and the worst I think the worst part for me is that my Walking Dead because it, it goes in alphabetical order from top to bottom. <laughs> my Walking Dead, some of my most expensive comics now are down in the bottom shelf. <laughs> Get them out, man. Get them out. <laughs> it freaks me out. I'm going to harangue you after this interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Ryan, I, I got to ask you. Okay. 
first off, you say that this started as a project to kind of just clear your mind and, and you know, and, and you turned into, it turned into this amazing series of drawings. And I just, uh, uh, when it, when the Kickstarter launched, I immediately showed it to my wife because of, because of this one right here, the pumpkins. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> she, absolute Halloween crazy around this house. And uh, I just love that design. I, I gotta ask, what what kicked off these designs? Just trying to clear your mind and, and get a little piece to it. Yeah, that was basically it. So when we last chat at the beginning of the year, at the beginning of 2022, uh, I was dead in the heat of the Kickstarter campaign for a Hunter's Tale. Uh, it is now in each of our hands. It has been realized. It has been fulfilled, and I'm so grateful for how unbelievable that campaign went you know there were well over 400 backers five figure funding for this little eight dollar comic book like that still blows my mind it was my most successful book launch to date and i've been making comics for almost 20 years at this point so it was great with that said it was also super exhausting because I was coordinating and printing mm. and stuffing envelopes and <clears throat> printing mailing labels and shipping things off for literally months after that campaign ended. And I'm proud to say that everything got delivered on time, but I was wiping my creative brow for a while after that. <laughs> and like, there are a ton of projects that I have, you know, rolling around in my brain that I want to get to, but they all seemed pretty daunting to undertake after a task so big. And so I, I I wasn't ready for them. And I was just sort of searching around for a way to get my hands moving again. And I was experimenting with a bunch of different stuff. Like I was taking online classes just for fun, like some Domestica courses. I was doing like Posca marker work, which is like these uh, acrylic paint markers. Uh, and then I tried out this uh, weird little mirror drawing thing. I saw my cartoonist buddy, Merrick Bennett, doing these things on his Patreon page. I, I'm a patron of his. And I saw him do them a few times, and eventually I was like, ah, I'll, I'll try my hand at that. And I really enjoyed it, so I did it again and again. And it kept going, and I was sharing these with my patrons, and it was getting really good feedback. So I thought, well, maybe I'll share some of this with my email update list. You know, I send out an email to folks who are interested in my work every other month. And again, they got good response there, too. And I started getting people asking me, like, okay, when's the book? And like that was the furthest thing from my mind when I was doing these drawings because they were just total, like, Bob Ross, happy tree moments, like, oh, yeah, let's yeah. put something over here. Like, just not thinking about things, not conceptualizing, just whatever happened to be on my mind that day, just, well, let's put that in there. And, um, yeah, I, I was really surprised at the traction it got. So I thought, well, maybe there's something to this. And so I really started conceptualizing what this project might look like. And I had big crazy pie in the sky dreams for what I'd love for it to look like. But I thought, you know, I don't know if my audience is going to be interested in this or not, because 
I've done comics so much, and this is not comics. It doesn't have a narrative, doesn't have story, it's not paneled, it's just illustrations. But I thought, you know, I'm doing all these in black and white, and a lot of people like this sort of meditative adult coloring book yeah. type of thing. Yeah. And uh, I was showing them to my wife, and she's like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to color those. I'm like, do you think this is a thing? Like, could people be interested in? And she's like, oh, yeah, I would totally buy that as a present for my friends. And uh, and so I thought, well, what if we make this like a really high-quality art book instead of just like, you know, a little floppy thing? Like, what if it was a hardback book, like, you know, uh, of quite nice production value? And so I ran tons of numbers and I'm like I would like it to be this but I think at least I can do this so I was thinking I'm going to come in at 48 pages hardcover book and my okay so I know we're all print nerds in this room so maybe you'll appreciate this but uh, I'm I'm having the book <gasps> section sewn not glue bound oh, yeah, yeah. so for those who are uh, not print nerds, it means that basically this hardcover book will be able to open and lay flat, which is really important if people mm. are going to be interacting with it and coloring it. So it's not like, you know, glue bound books. If you open them, they, yeah. they cannot open the whole way. So uh, that was really important. Them, they just start to peel apart. So having a sewn really gives a strength and quality to it. That's exactly right. However, it was also about twice as much money for me to print those section sewn than glue bound. So again, I was running all kinds of Excel spreadsheet numbers trying to figure this thing out because I did not want to raise the price of the book. I want to offer it at the same, but that meant I had to sell about twice as many as I had originally estimated. And I was really wondering, like, are there going to be enough folks buying into this to even make this project run? And, you know, ultimately I said, if there's not, then I know in my heart of hearts that I would not be happy with a glue-bound book. It just wouldn't do this project justice. Yeah. So uh, if there's not enough buy-in, then I'll, you know, revisit in a different format. But I'm so happy that I didn't. And not only did this thing fund on day one, but in the first week I'm, I'm talking to you guys after literally seven days that the campaign has been live. Uh, after less than a week, we've smashed through 10 stretch goals to the point where this thing is now 66% longer. It's now 80 pages instead of 48. Mm. It's got a built-in ribbon bookmark. It's got foil-stamped cover. It's uh, got upgraded paper stock. I upgraded it from 80-pound paper to 100-pound paper, oh, yeah. so it can really hold the media if you're interested in uh, coloring on it. So uh, it's just bigger, better, badder than I ever hoped it could be now. And <laughs> all of this is at the same price of entry. Like, nobody's paying any more for, like, two, three times as much book, essentially. Uh, it's all at the same starting price, whether you uh, were one of those day one backers or just coming in right now. So uh, if folks are interested, they can check this out at mirrordrawings.com. It, 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 it's beautiful work. And, you know, it, my, my wife does the, uh, the coloring, the meditative coloring, and uh, I think she's going to absolutely love this thing. Um, you know, it just the designs, the, the the paper stock, everything, and the fact that it's a hardcover too, 
that that alone, you could have done you could have done this not a hardcover and saved yourself some money, and you went hardcover. And I, I think that's awesome. I mean, it, I, now I have to ask, what? At what point did you did you think okay, uh, you know, first set of stretch goals are done. Holy crap, phase two. And at what point did you see those the phase two going almost to completion? And you're like, did you pause and go, uh, what what is happening right now? <laughs> like, did you have I'm, a freak out moment? I mean, did you have a camera in my house? Because it's kind of how it went. Um, I I. I had plans for a number of different stretch goals in the crazy case that people were willing to come along on this wild ride with me. And I'm so thankful they did because I, I felt like if I came out of the gate with that many pages, that many bells and whistles that it, I was afraid it would have been a tough sell, but I tried to plan it so that, it scaled such that once I get X number of backers, then the price per unit comes down a little bit, and then I can tack on another thing. And then I, like I said, I have copious spreadsheets of, okay, now the price per book is coming down a little bit again. Now I can tack on another cool thing, and it's still maintaining about the same, for me, price per unit. And that continued on throughout those 10 stretch goals. It's still crazy. I can't believe I'm saying that. 10 stretch goals. But yes, uh, <laughs> it, it continued to grow throughout to the point where it is now. Yeah. yeah. Now, we also know that you you teach um, in regards to comics and productions and things. Is this something that you're going to be encouraging in your students to be able to get them to kind of step away for a minute, refocus, and, and as the book says, it's meditative. Uh, you got to try and get them to understand that sometimes you need to step back and you need to 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 get that pause. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I teach a number of different comics courses, and especially in my advanced comics course, we talk about large project productivity. And essentially, each class is a semester long. In my fundamentals class, they're making several short stories. The first one is two to three pages long. Next one's about five to seven. Last one's about seven to ten. So when they're done with the class, they compile their short stories into one comic book that's you know roughly 24 pages long. In the advanced class, they propose a longer length story that's about 18 to 24 pages long. So really, they're not producing any more or less than they did in the class that they just took. But that extended length project is something that weighs very heavy in the artistic psyche. And so I go into this, you know, very early on in the class and try to give them strategies for tracking their progress so they know how far they've come. Even like on week one, they can see, okay, I'm ahead of the curve or I need to catch up a little bit. Um, I also give them strategies for uh, continuing work throughout a larger project and maintaining morale. Uh, So yes, this is definitely stuff that we talk about in my class. Um, I also give my advanced comic students the opportunity to uh, have me coach them through a Kickstarter campaign, if they so choose. 
it's not something that I require of anyone because I'm not going to require students to put their financial information online if they're not comfortable. Mm -hmm. And in this day and age where everybody's had, <clears throat> we've all been through trauma at this point mm -hmm. over the past two and a half, three years, uh, we've all been through a lot. And I don't want to put any more on anyone's plate than they want to have. So it's completely optional, but I have had students take me up on that in the past because it's a huge undertaking. Making a comic is a huge undertaking. Running a Kickstarter campaign is a huge undertaking. Yeah. So if they sign up for this, it's almost like they're jamming two classes into one. It's, it's a ton of work, but the folks who do it, you know, I, I sort of walk them through this process of like, you can make a comic, and then not do anything with it afterward. Mm -hmm. That is okay. I'm not requiring you to do anything at the end of this class when your comic is done. Or you can take part in this online event that we have. And basically, I required like uh, three things from them: uh, YouTube pitch video, a cover design, and an online payment button like PayPal or Venmo or something. And I toss all these on a page on my website, and we send everybody here for about a week to ten days. And it's like an online event that we can publicize and then they purchase their books there so that's good they can make some money they can make some sales uh, but it's also a finite period of time and you typically are not going to make as much as you will in a Kickstarter campaign right then the last choice they have is like the most beneficial you can possibly get is Kickstarter and that's going to likely yield more money but it also gives you an audience base that you can come back to. If somebody pushes a PayPal button, you know, they get your book and then they sort of disappear. But Kickstarter maintains these audience lists that yeah. you can message later on and say, hey, if you liked, you know, Aquatic Space Boy number one, boy, howdy, are you going to like number two? And here comes the campaign for the follow-up issue so that you can essentially bring that audience over and then build on top of that audience you already have and continue that audience growth. So, um, but with all those benefits, it is also the most work. And I make mm -hmm. no qualms about telling them all this. You know, I've, I've been through it myself. I've done everything that I'm asking of you or, you know, offering you to do. And the students who have taken me up on the Kickstarter campaign just uh, last year, um, Angela Rodriguez had this killer comic book about her younger sister who was suffering through anxiety in school and it was very difficult to diagnose and uh, was kind of getting overlooked and like pushed into the cracks a little bit until they finally figured out what was going on and it was the story of her sister and normalizing this experience that she was having but also, I think really importantly for everyone, being able to recognize something like that. So she had this killer book and I coached her through this Kickstarter campaign and for her first comic book, she got $1,100 from her Kickstarter campaign wow. that she did for my advanced class. And if you told me, you know, 18, 19 years ago, little 20-something Ryan, that he could make 1100 bucks off his first comic, I would have thought you were crazy. Yeah. I was walking my hand-stapled, <clears throat> folded book around to comic book shops, begging <laughs> yep. them 
to take them on consignment mm. in the hopes that maybe one day I'd see something from it. But if you said 1100 bucks, no way. And Angela's not the only one. Um, I had uh, Antoinette Davis, who did this uh, Filipino vampire story in the year prior to that. And her campaign blew up to over $2,500 for her first comic book. So this is a resource that I am incredibly passionate about. I I think we may have touched on it a little bit last time we were talking, too. So I don't want to completely beat this dead horse but no, there's a very long answer to your short question no that's <laughs> i'm glad you're talking about this because this is what we want to discuss um rook has become a kickstarter junkie um actually yes. i've had to send people out to intervene with him but, um, <laughs> but you know that's i was an art major in college and one of my best friends from that time one thing he said to me was i wish they would have taught us how to make money it was a fine art program um now, before I went to college, I worked worked in, in graphics, and I've continued to do that. But when my daughter was going to school, she was an art major as well. And I told her, if you want to, that's fine. He says, but this isn't like going to school to become a nurse or electrical engineer. You get out of college, you're right back where you started, or in my case, I was behind where I started. Yeah. And... um. I said, it's up to you. Now, saying this, there was one guy I went to college with. He worked as a sign painter, or worked for a sign painter before he went. He's one of those rare individuals that can monetize things. He was a great artist, still a great artist, but he's gone into engraving, sign painting, uh, even graphics. But that's a rare bird. Uh, Most of us would rather just be in a room listening to music really loud, drawing by themselves. And what amazes me when you spoke was, being a cartoonist, I imagine, what I've always been told was, you have to make deadlines, you have to produce a lot of work. The other thing is, is you have to get yourself out there. And everything you talked about, you had students going to comic comic stores, uh, comic shows, you know, putting their work out there. Uh, which to me, I would imagine would be like those dreams you have of going to to middle school with no clothes. <laughs> but um, but you're doing that, and you're doing the same thing with the Kickstarter. I I think people need to hear more of what you're talking about because you're showing the nuts and bolts of how to do comics, but you're also showing how to get it out there instead of us living in a back room somewhere, you know, not making money, but you know, doing what we want to do. Amen. Yes. So I know this is an audio medium, but I am nodding vigorously at everything Don (laughs) is saying right now. Um, So, yes, I tell my students all the time, if you want to keep making art, then you have to make money doing art. I know that's like a four letter word and a fine art program, but it's so true. And thankfully, comics are a reproducible medium. You know, like people aren't clamoring for your original artwork but it's designed to be reproduced and then sold in book form so you can make as many of these things as you can sell um but and then you know of course students will sort of push back and say well what if i you know go get a barista job or something and okay well yes that's possible but 
after eight hours of slain yeah. coffee, you're going to be pretty wiped out. And so, yeah, maybe you'll have an hour left in you. But if you want to keep doing this full time, then you've got to be able to make money at it. Yeah. And so I am adamant, even from when I've, the very first time I taught this comics class back in 2009 at Michigan State University, the very first semester I had my students doing an in-store signing. So every semester I've taught this, whether it's intro class, advanced class, what have you, there's a professional development component at the end of each course. And uh, it's not something that's sent to me from on high. This is something I'm very passionate right. about. Um, so it was in-store signings in the pre-pandemic times. Uh, so far, post-pandemic time, during and post, whatever you want to call yeah. the times we're in, um, we've been doing online events. And they're still uh, making money off of what they sell. I really want that to be a component that... We're not doing busy work here. Like you are creating something that has value and you're going to see that at the end of this course. So, um, so yeah, I'm very passionate about that. And I'm, I don't know that, uh, I, I don't know how many people do that in art departments. I think it's sorely lacking. At least it was when I was going through school. So um, I really wanted to incorporate that into the classes that I teach. Yeah, yeah I, I had the same issue uh, when I was in college. And when I, uh, when I started working at the college, I can't tell you how many students would be like, well, how much can I make? <laughs> and it's like, you can make as much as you can negotiate for, you know? I mean, it, it was, you know, the structure in which you're talking about teaching your students how to go about this is so fantastic because you know when i was when i was in art school we were just told you know oh the value of your art is what you can get for it well i can get five bucks because i need lunch right now yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know so yeah it, it as artists it's something that i think as graphic artists, it's something that I saw people really struggle with. Um, I, I myself, um, you know, had issues with bands that I worked with that didn't want to pay the amount that I that I asked for for websites or design work, and you know, went off and found some desktop publishing program, and it looked horrible. <laughs> but you know, and you know. It's important to know your own value, and I think that is a, a part of the lessons you're teaching these students, which is fantastic. You know, it's really something they need to know. Yeah, and I, I feel pretty strongly about also practicing what I preach, too. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want to just be some talking head who doesn't have the experience you know here's here's a year where i'm i'm doing a couple of these things that i'm going to be coaching you through so hey this is all public go take a look at what i'm doing and even for things like you know there's there's this progressive move toward uh digitally producing everything and uh you know i still teach both i teach analog and digital approaches to art making and they'll say, well, do we have to do that analog stuff? And I tell them, no, you, d you don't have to. You can do anything you want to. 
whether you do it analog or digital, I'm holding everybody to the same standards, but you might think about a couple things first. Like, I am, am not, you, know, you don't have to look at me as an example, but I will pencil digitally and then I'll print it out so that I hand ink everything. Personally, I do that because I feel like I cannot get the, the fidelity of line that I want digitally. Digital ends up you know, sort of correcting things and yeah. making it look so darn slick. And I, I, I want that sort of like organic, <clears throat> slightly wobbly, hand-drawn look to things. And um, you know, something with a little more character for me personally. But there's an added bonus of that is that I have original artwork and entirely digital artists do not. That's yeah. another way to monetize your work. So go look at the Hunter's Tale campaign, and I put up every single original art page on that campaign, and you can see how much that tier sold for, you can see how many pages sold, and you can do some quick math, and you can see if I did that book entirely digitally, I would have left literally thousands of dollars mm. on the table. So. There's an example of why you might want to think about sort of a hybrid approach to art making. Um, so I try to expose them to all this stuff in addition to the principles of comics and the mechanics of comics and how to make stories that matter to people. You know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot to talk about over the course of a semester. So that's right. why we've got multiple courses, of course. But yeah, I'm. I could talk about this till I'm blue in the face. <laughs> no, it, it, it's interesting, and I think a lot of people need to hear that. Um, going back, I want to. <clears throat> how did you approach the design work on um, the mirror, the mirror drawings? Because the drawings are nice. The design, though, it just amazes me. I was trying to. Did you sketch these things out? and They just grew organically. Did they change as you you worked on them and inked them? So, a lot of the... I'm guessing you're talking about the illustrations themselves, yes, right? Yes. Or are you talking about, like, the layout of the book? No, the illustrations themselves, each illustration. Okay. Yeah, so uh, when I said these things sort of evolved in a very Bob Ross fashion, I, I meant that. Like, it's it just sort of whatever was coming out of my hand, I tried very hard to not place any judgments on what was going on because uh, I, I do that to myself and I know it's not uh, healthy and so I'm like you know nobody's going to see this weird little mirror drawing thing so just have fun like just, right. just let it go and so uh, some of them are uh, more abstract some are more figurative um, I have some drawings that like I don't know my, my son was going to the zoo and doing a report on sea otters and so I drew a bunch of sea otters on one of them. And then, you know, we were outside playing, looking at rabbits and squirrels. And so I have this, like, one that's in the meadow with all these little woodland creatures. And then other times I just don't even want to think about something figurative because I'm mentally taxed or I've had a big day. And so I'll just sit down and those weird mandala ones will sort of ooze out. Hmm. I'll just think about, like, well, what would be cool here? Maybe I'll start with some sort of a floral... Um, motif and then I don't know what's past that well everything's kind of open line work here so maybe I'll add 
something that's more of a spot black. And then what's after that? I don't know. Like maybe some flames. And then it, it just sort of like very thoughtlessly, I feel like it's a, sort of a crass word, but like thoughtlessly evolves. Um, and, uh, and here they are. <laughs> it, it was also rare in the beginning for me to lay down any pencils. Like there are a lot of drawings in here that were just ink to page, like really? no forethought whatsoever. Eventually I started wanting to get a little more complex and figurative with some of the illustrations in there. Like um, you probably saw, if you scroll down a little bit of the page, there's like this weird conglomeration of uh, like sort of misfit monsters, right? Like there's this ape looking thing and yeah, that's yeah. the one. So uh, when I was trying to piece together this like big crowd of figures that I started like penciling some heads and stuff and trying to reposition them a little bit so I wouldn't have unsightly tangent lines or something. So eventually in more complex illustrations, I would lay down some pencils. Uh, there's also this big dinosaur illustration that I did that I haven't shown yet that, uh, that, that required quite a bit of penciling from me, right. but many of them, I'd say probably a good two thirds of the drawings <clears throat> in that book are just ink to page. Well, I'm, I'm even more impressed now. That's, um, my favorite was the one with the rocket ship. I love that no. one too. Yeah, that was, um, and <laughs> that, if oh, I'm sorry, if you're listening, these examples will be on the blog, so you can take a look. Also, with links to his Kickstarter and all the other information. Okay, go ahead. I didn't mean to walk over you. Sure, no problem. Uh, yeah, if people want to check these out again, it's at mirrordrawings.com. That URL will take them straight to the Kickstarter page. Uh, but you mentioned that rocket ship one, and that was one where I really started to think about how I could mix up these drawings because basically these drawings are drawn in a corner of my sketchbook and mm -hmm. then duplicated and mirrored so that that drawing is seen four times like it's duplicated four times but I started thinking about how I can mix up those axes like instead of seeing four axes how can I make it look like there's only two or maybe an odd number like six or 10 like how can i make it look like there's a different number than there yeah. actually are and so i started trying to conceptualize like you know putting a profile uh i'm sorry not a profile a front view of a figure like right in the middle so that it duplicates over and you only see them a couple times right. or like with those rocket ships i made it look like there were six axes instead of four because one of those rockets were split in half and the other one was full so when it duplicates around four times Four times one point five is six instead of four. Uh, you know, one times four is right. four, or have something two times is eight. Um, so I really started trying to conceptualize ways to mix these up and make a greater variety of images, even with this pretty uniform system of image creation. Um, I don't. I. I one of the ways that I conceptualize my working process is custom puzzle solving. Like, I'm not interested in getting a box of pieces and putting together something that's already been done, like something that somebody's telling me to do. The same thing with, like, 
those painting nights, right? Like, okay, everybody mm. paint this thing now. And I just, yeah. I can't stand it. But uh, it's not to say those don't have value. Right. Those completely do. But for me, it, it's, it's very difficult. But I do like solving puzzles that haven't been solved before, like baking a page of comics in some new and interesting way, or designing watches and figuring out how those movements work and designing neon signs. Like each of these things have their own system of limitations and custom puzzle solving elements. Like when I'm designing neon signs you and you're making an animated sign, you cannot make those animated elements cross because then when the back one illuminates, then the front one is going to illuminate too. So you've got to figure out how to like sort of weave these pieces of glass together or like in the case of watches, there's different movements that, you know, either there's a single axis or there can be multiple axes that you're working with and each of those movements will allow you to do different things. So all that to say, I really started viewing these mirror drawings as another means of custom puzzle piecing. And the more I did them, the more like my mind would just sort of shift into this mirror drawing mode. Even when I wasn't doing them, I was just like sort of going to bed at night and I'd get these ideas about, oh, I, like this would be really interesting and a way to make a greater variety within these images. Uh, it, it was really a fun exercise for me. Yeah. Okay. You answered my very awkward and incomplete question very well. <laughs> But um, now I'm going back. Designing neon signs. Let's talk about that for a minute. This is oh, for real. Please. This is for real. Is is it true? Yeah. Yeah. You design neon signs as well. Yes, I have a portfolio. Do you want to see it? <laughs> We'd love to. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's. Uh, I don't know. So this much is... going up. I love it. This is this is going to make for a horrible audio cast, but uh, if folks want to check it out, you can go to tinyurl.com slash clayacre. That's C-L-A-Y-A-C-R-E. And that will take you to a page on my website that has these collaborative neon signs. Um, I partnered with this uh, incredible neon fabricator. His name is Josh Goodacre. He owns a business called The Neon Shop, and it's here in Michigan. He's uh, been bending neon for over 30 years, just an absolute pro. And um, to take it way back, uh, probably about six, seven, eight, nine years ago or so, a buddy of mine turned 40 about five years before I did. And when he did, his wife contacted me and she said, hey, can you help me make something for Pete's 40th birthday? I'm like, yeah, of course. You know, what do you want me to do? And so she's like, I want to make a neon sign. And I'm like, oh, what? Like, I didn't even know custom neon signs were something that could happen in this life. So I'm like, tell me where to go. So we, we designed this thing together and, uh, had somebody fabricate it. Unfortunately, the person that fabricated that one passed away. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he's no longer around, but ever since I designed that sign for my buddy, I go down to his arcade and visit him at his home. And I would just 
stare at that sign. I was so captivated by it. If you've never been in front of a neon sign before, there's there's no there's no replicating it. Um, it's just it, it's it's luminous. It's gas and glass like physical um, elements creating this thing. It's colorful. It could be animated. And uh, after I made that for my buddy. I was pining for my own sign. And yeah. I told my wife, I, I, I got to have one. Of, we got to have one of these things. And so she kept saying, you know, maybe for your 40th, maybe for your 40th, which was like half a decade away at that point. And so that desire did not wane. And uh, when it came around to my 40th, I'm like, okay. And I designed... I, I over-designed this thing, meaning I had so many different designs because I figured this is the one time I'm going to be able to do this in my entire life, and I want this to be right. So I went through literally dozens of designs and chose the one that I was very happy with, got it fabricated, found a fellow locally, and when I was going through the process of designing that sign, I was not knowledgeable about neon in the least yeah. and so i'd take a design to him and i'd say hey you know what do you think <clears> about this and have like 87 uh, frames of animation and like you know just things that he's like <laughs> well we could do this but every frame of animation takes another transformer and every transformer costs x amount of money so if you yeah. multiply that by the number of frames that you've got you're price of your sign is going to multiply so if you got that much money we can make this happen but i didn't have that much money so right. I'm like okay gotcha so like pair it back bring it in show them again what do you think and then he'd tell me more things like not crossing lit elements in animated neon signs like okay got that one do it again bring something back and by the third time or so i was like okay I, I think i got it now so like if you don't want to keep seeing these things i don't have to keep sending them to you like i don't want to bother you and he's like no no keep sending these things in i've been bending neon for 30 years and i'm finally excited about making something <laughs> he's just you know been in the same old budweiser and you know car <gasps> sign texaco right. signs that people yeah. want and uh and what he really wants to do is make these custom signs for people right. and so i kept sending them them and uh, we developed this relationship over the course of making my neon sign. And when I was doing that, I was posting this process in a pinball forum because, you know, I love pinball and right. this is going to go in my arcade. And uh, to my surprise, somebody reached out to me out of the blue and even before my sign was complete and said, I want you to do this for me. And I'm like, are you sure? Cause like I, the sign's not even made yet. I hope it's okay when it's done. And he's like, no, no, I've seen what you're doing. I, I want to hire you. So, uh, that first hire took place immediately after my sign was complete. And that just started a snowball rolling to the point where over the past, gosh, two, three years, we've been collaborating together. We've got well over a dozen signs under our belt now, and they've gone to multiple different States uh, we've got uh, signs hanging in people's arcades. We've got signs hanging outside historical societies, like, yeah. you know, public, uh, you know, outdoor signs. We've got indoor signs. It's been a blast. It's, uh, I don't know, I, I love, I love it. I love making neon signs. And that's, 
a sentence I never thought I would be able to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they so, were always a yeah. done deal. When I was growing up, you'd see them, but you never think about somebody actually making them. Completely, yeah. yes. <clears throat> but, well, that's I amazing. I thought, like, neon signs were kind of a thing of the past. <clears throat> like, to do custom ones was super expensive and just out of the reach of most people. And you're you're getting to design these signs and, and have fun with it. That's awesome because, yeah, I, I really didn't think that a lot of that was going on anymore. Yeah, it's definitely a, uh, a diminishing art form. Uh, I'm trying to think of the percentage of neon sign makers that are around now compared to what it was in the heyday. I don't know those numbers, but it's severely diminished. So there are not as many neon vendors around now as there used yeah. to be, period. Um, with that said, there are museums popping up, like the Ignite Sign Museum, the uh, Las Vegas uh, Neon Boneyard. Uh, there's a neon museum in Los Angeles as well. There's a number of them popping up that are like preserving these historical artifacts. And I think largely because of this, there's sort of a little resurgence and people taking an interest in neon signs and I'm seeing like neon classes popping up where mm. you can sort of try your hand at making neon and I, I don't I don't know how many folks who take classes like that end up going into business. I think it's more of like a hey let's have fun on a Saturday afternoon yeah. but because uh, my, my buddy Josh, my partner who I make these signs with, um, I I used to go to his shop pre-pandemic and just like hang out and draw because his shop is out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and uh, occasionally I'll just get tired of being around people <laughs> so I'm like hey Josh can I come out and just <laughs> hang out and draw he's like oh yeah I'm just sitting here bending so I'd sit in his shop and draw with him and you know we we might talk or we might not like it doesn't matter we're just hanging out go grab some lunch um, and then one day he's like, hey, do you want to try this out? I'm like, what, bend the glass? And he's like, yeah. Like, I don't want to ruin your glass, man. Like, I'm not going to do this any good. <laughs> he's like, well, come on over here. So he, like, shows me how to, you know, move the thing around in the fire and, like, follow uh, uh, a pattern that's printed out. Um, and, you know, mine looked like wet spaghetti compared to his. But yeah. uh, it was really interesting to try to make all that happen and really illuminating about how much experience you have to have to do this well. Like I, I've been there when he's bending like, you know, the old SO sign, E-S-S-O, it's yeah, one of those gas yeah. signs. Yeah. And that, that red lettering is sort of like scripty. And he was, I was watching him bending these letters and see the E and it's starting to form and he starts bending the S and then he goes like, I don't know, six inches down the line and he starts bending something. I'm like, what are you doing there? Because you didn't finish that S. And he's like, oh no, if I make that next bend, then when I do the next bend, then it's going to go into the glass and then I can't do it. So I've got to go like three bends down oh, and then yeah. start bending that, but then bring that back over with the last bend and then it'll all go into place. And I'm just like, what are you talking right. about? Like I could follow you for like one or two bends, but he's like way down the line conceptualizing right. how all this is going to like 
transform robot itself together in the very end. It's yeah. unbelievable. So anyway, occasionally I'll have people say like, are you ever going to go into uh, fabricating neon? I'm like, oh, mercy, no, I will never. <laughs> I love to design it. I cannot fabricate it. And I found the perfect partner in Josh because he says the exact opposite. He's like, I love to bend it, but I can't design it. So like we make uh, right. a very nice uh, uh, professional marriage. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, and anybody listening, we'll have this link to the blog as well so you can see these things, which I'll be checking as soon as we finish recording. Um, awesome. One other thing. Last time we, we had you on the show, um, we're with a bunch of dorks, which is an umbrella. The original Bunch of Dorks show, uh, the head dork was Mal. Mal's in the pinball. He's he's built video games, restored them. And I just told him, I says, uh, we had a guy on the show that does comic books, but he made a book. You know, the, the I can't remember the name of the pinball. Coin Up Carnival. Yeah, yeah. Yep. In a Coin Up Carnival. But I told him, and I sent him a link. He had the book. I heard that on your follow-up show. Oh, okay, I did say that. I was laughing out loud when I was listening to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I said, how how did you know about this? And he said, um, <clears throat> I think he won a contest on another podcast. And um, huh. okay, he does a a podcast called Pinball Junk Drawer. I'd have a link to the blog, but he's piggybacking on some other one. Um, anyway, I guess the. The Bunch of Dorks website is supposed to be revamped, um, and he's going to put that on there. So someday in the future, hopefully you guys can hear it, because I can't link it because it's with somebody else. But anyway, you've been around and didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had to laugh on that episode. You guys were doing the Hunter's Tale follow-up, and you're like, man, that Ryan Clater gets around. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Ryan, I... I got to tell you, I found a place in Atlanta that I think you would absolutely... Well, it's just outside of Atlanta, actually. But I think you would love it. It's a, it's a spot called My Parents' Basement. It's a comic book shop, bar, arcade, cafe. Ooh. Oh, wow. That sounds and magical. <laughs> Arcade-wise, they've got probably like 15 pinball machines. Nice. And, and then they've got like the old classic sit down um, uh, Miss Pac-Man. Like the but cocktail I walked tables. in there and I'm like, yeah. comics? Pinball? <laughs> There's a cafe out front? Wow. And I was like, this place is magic. I love it. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I'm going to have to look that up. It's called My Parents' Basement? It's called My Parents' Basement. Uh, <laughs> let me see if I can exactly which city it's in. I don't remember. What, a friend of mine lives uh, lives up there, and it's yeah, it's this awesome place called my parents' basement. And she's like, "I'm taking you guys out when you're in Atlanta." <laughs> and I walk in, and I'm just like, "I'm home." <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'll I'll have to keep that on my list if I head back down there. I did a a tour in the South in 2011, and went through Georgia. Um, but yeah, if I get back there, man, I'll have to look that up. That sounds incredible. Yeah, it's a cool spot. It really is. And 
you know, the, the, the pinball point. I lost my wife. Like, we walk in and she just immediately <laughs> disappears to the pinball machines. And I'm like, ooh, comics. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you have a smart wife. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, yeah. You're much smarter than I am, trust me. <laughs> Uh, um, one of the designs uh, is obviously an homage to the love of pinball as well. Um, I got such a kick out of this because I'm looking at it and I'm like, yep, there's the bumpers, there's the pinball. You know, <laughs> this is just such an uh, – and that would be you in there, is, the, is that not? Yeah, that's the self-portrait mirror drawing. <laughs> a lot of lot of my uh, my nerdy interests in there, you know, from handheld gaming to pinball to watches to you know all sorts of stuff in there. So that was that was actually the first mirror drawing I did when I thought oh, I'm just going to mess around with this thing. I'm, what do I do? I don't know. I'm just going to draw whatever I'm into. <laughs> so it sort of turned out to be a, a self-portrait of sorts. Oh, now I see the watches. I noticed yeah. the, the Game Boy and, uh-huh. and the cartridge. Now I see the watch. Yep. That's that's the even more fun part about these drawings is that as you're sitting there looking at them, you're like, oh, wait a minute. That's that's a whole other element there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you start coloring them, you'll, you're going to start noticing a lot more as well. Totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about your students, I, I've got two questions here, and I hope we have time. Have you... Has any of them continued on to do more comic work? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I've had students who have done you know, like cover artwork for Image Comics. I've had students who have done storyboards for Super Bowl ads. Uh, they've gone on to uh, intern at Cartoon Network. Oh, yeah. Um, there's So they've, they've done a bunch of stuff. I'm super proud of my students. Uh, I, I'm... Think they're probably already outshining me. <laughs> well, then, no, it's yeah. When you were telling earlier about how you're teaching them, I think you know if I was in this place, I would make sure they didn't know as much as I did because they're not going to surpass me. But anyway, <laughs> you're better than I am. That's, I'm, I'm that's happy the goal when for they do. Yeah. That's the goal for any teacher to see our students go above and beyond what we've what we've <laughs> done and take that information and just run with it. You yeah, know? yeah, that's um, right. When I heard my my former student uh, storyboarded a Super Bowl ad, then all right, let's have you back and talk to my class. Come on, oh yeah, <laughs> nice. I've, I've got I've got a budget to bring you back here. Let's make it happen. Very nice. Yeah. Um, my other question: You talked about last time you were on the show about the comic library. Yes. And uh, you said that the guy was originally trying to stay under the radar, and um, I linked it to the. I looked it up and you know added links to the site, but um, it kind of fascinated me because they're interviewing him. And he's really excited. Um, what was that like before I wanted to stay under the radar? And of course, you made sure it wasn't. And uh, what's what's gone on since? How, was he upset at you? Was he happy? Um, how is well, the library? He's, he's he's not upset at me. Randy Scott and I have a mutual admiration society right, right. <laughs> I, I think so highly of him you know he built this world-class collection that like i almost can't even talk about without getting emotional about right. it it's 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 the world's largest public collection <clears throat> of comics period there there is no larger um there are other comics libraries and there are other very large collections of things like the billy ireland yes. and um the the Ohio State University 
Um, they have an incredible collection. I think they have the largest collection of original artwork and newspaper comics, but they do not have the largest public collection of accessible comic books. Like that's Michigan State University. So um, Randy was the guy who literally wrote the book on comics librarianship. Um, and you, you can still look that book up. He wrote it. <laughs> right. And it's what many folks will refer back to when making their own collections, because there's more comics collections being formed every day. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he's, he's worked at MSU for about 50 years at this point. And I am very sad to say that he has put in a retirement date for the end of this month. So at the end of October, he's going to be on his own. And I am equal parts elated for him that he can do whatever he wants to. And also extraordinarily sad that we will not have him at Michigan State University anymore. But his legacy will continue because his collection is going to be there. I mean, he, he, for all intents and purposes built that collection single-handedly there are some stories along the way about how it started with a six thousand comic book donation from a pulitzer prize winning professor named russell nye and then randy built on top of that but when you look at what randy has amassed over the course of his lifetime working here it's over three hundred and fifty thousand entries into this comics database and again, I, I, I show a pie chart to demonstrate, like, what was that initial 6,000 comic book donation? Because it sounds like a lot, and it, it was, but it is a sliver of what Randy has amassed mm. over 50 years of cataloging this stuff. So uh, Randy Scott is just the patron saint of comics, in my opinion. I and, agree. Uh, he will be sorely missed. Um, now, is this library, we talked about this before, but I'm trying to get, is it being used? I mean, are the students taking advantage of it or, or other yeah, cartoonists, I, educators? Yes, all of the above. So I make sure that everybody who passes through my class knows that this exists. Uh, the first field trip I take them on on the very first day is to walk them across campus to the main library and I introduce them to Randy Scott and he takes them down to the basement and explodes their minds and shows right. them these racks upon racks upon racks of comics that he's amassed. And it's not even everything we have. I mean, we've got a bunch of stuff in remote storage. There's so much we cannot contain it all in the library. Even though there's like movable shelves that allow you to pack a bunch more in, right, right. It's, uh, it, we still can't keep it all uh, under one roof. So we have multiple roofs to contain all this right. stuff so like if you're interested in seeing some obscure um, you know foreign comic like maybe you want to see a comic from North Korea I think I mentioned this on the show last yes. time yes, we've got comics from North Korea we might have to go out to remote storage and get it so you might have to give us a little more time but it's there it's accessible and people use it so yes my students use it yes faculty use it Yes, visiting scholars use it. We have scholars coming from literally all over the world. I've been in the reading room multiple times when I don't know who's there. I'm like, hey, how are you doing? I'm Ryan. I teach the comics classes here. Uh, what brings you in here? 
like, oh, I traveled here from Europe to research these books that I cannot find anywhere else, and they only exist here, and you have an entire collection of them. So, like, uh, yes, people from all over the world come to yeah, use this. That's impressive. That's amazing. Do you, I love that. I guess another question I've always had in my mind, do regular students at the school that aren't taking your course, do any of them like go in to read? Occasionally, I have heard that students who are comics interested will find out that this library exists and use it quite a bit. I get um, it. Yeah, because, again, it's like <clears throat> an entire history of a medium at your fingertips right. for free, right? Right. Like, that's hard to beat. You could go to the local comic book store, and I'm sure they still do. You'd get more current stuff there, but... You know, there's runs of everything you can think of and things you can't even think of. So it's it's an unparalleled resource and one right. that I hang my hat on frequently when I am making proposals to upper administration about what else we need to do with comics now. You know, it's um I guess that's an interesting theme because I grew up you get reprints of old comics. And sometimes you get those books, you know, that have uh, pictures of the covers in a, you know, postage stamp size. And you get some pages, you get key key sections of, you know, both Marvel, DC, Fawcett, all this stuff. But we live in an age now where you can get collections pretty cheap. And um, even if... A lot of the stuff I always read was from those Marvel Treasury editions, the uh, Origins of Marvel Comics, you know, those little collections they would do. And um, I started finding cheap those Marvel Masterworks. I've always wanted to read the 102 issues that Jack Kirby did of the Fantastic Four. I, I've read a lot of them, not all. I always thought they were the greatest. We were a Megacon, and they were selling them for 10 bucks a piece. I guess if you bought five of them, not a problem. So I got all the books, and I read them from start to finish. Um, absolutely not disappointed, but when you're reading these things in order, it's a different thing than the piecemeal. And, I mean, you didn't read them in order. You only read some of them. And that's what I was just curious about, if people were taking advantage of that and getting a chance, because you start seeing the history and how things came about. Also, um... The DC work, the 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 you know, the forties and fifties work. It's a lot different animal than the one I was reading in the late sixties and early seventies. You know, and well, anyway, I, I could go on and on, but I'm I'm glad to hear people are using this um, because I was impressed when you talked about it, but I was a lot more impressed when I started seeing the scope when I started finding links and seeing interviews with the guy because I imagine. God, why does this guy show up? Now everybody's going to know about the comic books. It's going to be closed. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no way. we got to let everybody know about this thing so that it doesn't go anywhere. The more people that know about it, the more people that use it, the more solid this collection yes. is going to be. And that's been my belief, my opinion since I got here. And, uh, yeah, I, I still mention it to Whoever will listen to me. <laughs> well, he looked extremely happy about it, so. <laughs> but, um, well, what's... Go ahead. Go ahead, Rook. Go ahead, go ahead. 
I was going to ask, I think, what you were going to ask. What's um, what's the future? What, what are you planning on after this? Am I correct? <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, let's see. After mirror drawings, uh, I, well, I, I did not think I was going to do mirror drawings. So right. the next project I was going to work on is the project I'll work on after mirror drawings. And that is an art book of collecting... 20 years of Elephant Eater comics or 20 years of me making comics and artwork and illustrations and watches and neon design and custom illustrations for people. So it's going to be a lot of unpublished work of mine dating all the way back to like my grad school days where I was making these weird little illustrated interactive games to like a collection of my neon work that's never seen print before to the watch designs and all of it is going to have a very process oriented focus so like I used to think art books I don't know they're not really for me because I like art with narrative I like art with story Mm -hmm. and the art books that I saw were just kind of like an image on a page not much information, and that's it. Or they would be at the other end of the spectrum where it's like a ton of exhaustive research and text upon text upon text and like some images, but a lot of word book reading. (laughs) And that wasn't what I was into either. And I really started looking around at more art books after a buddy of mine really started pushing some on me and said, you know, everybody who's an artist should make an art book like huh i don't know if i agree with that let me see if i do or do not agree with that and look at a few more of these things and i really started getting interested in the wide and varied approach approaches that people would take to art books you know some people use it as like a gallery in pages it's just a single image and maybe they'll have like a date maybe a title if you're lucky and that's about it but it's pretty sparse in terms of words. And I would occasionally find art books that also included some process work. And I really found myself gravitating toward those types of art books. And I think as uh, a professor, as a teacher, as an educator, that's like built into my DNA. I want to share how something comes about, like sort of demystify the making process And when I started conceptualizing it like that, it really started to take a hold in me. And so I developed over the course of, you know, an iterative process, how I wanted these pages to look. And so essentially on the right hand side will be a full page, full color image of the work itself. But then paired on the same spread over on the left hand side, you're going to see how it started, what the Mm -hmm. client wanted, like in the course of uh, like a neon sign, what the client wanted, uh, several sketches that I would give them. And then once they select one of those sketches, then we'll move on to color iterations. And then once one of those color iterations is chosen, then you move on to the right-hand page where you see the final presented uh, neon sign. Or maybe it's a watch, or maybe it's an illustration, or maybe it's a business card that I made for myself 15 years ago and the iterative process and the sketches that went into that. So really, it's a very process-focused art book that I am working on after mirror drawings. I've got probably, I don't know, 
120, 150 pages completed so far. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would like to run a Kickstarter for that in mid to late 2023 so that I can fulfill it by 2024, which will be the 20th anniversary of Elephant Eater Comics, me making comics. So it really show the process of the evolution of Elephant Mm -hmm. Eater. And it will show all the different elements that really make up who you are. That's yes. really cool. That's a really yeah. cool idea. I like it. Do you have yeah. any... So I, I... Go ahead, go ahead. Go, go for it, Don. Well, sorry, I keep talking over buddy. <laughs> um, that's how I roll. No, um, <laughs> do you have any comic ideas after this? I mean, is there anything that's eating you at the back of your head that you're wanting to put out? Yes, I very much want to get back to the Coin-Op Carnival series, okay. and uh, I have co-written number one and fully illustrated it, and that's out. And my plan was to move into number two after we finished touring number one, and that's what we were doing. We were working toward that. I, I say we, my, my best bud, Nick Baldridge, who is my co-writer for the book, yeah. uh, and I were working toward that. I was illustrating. I illustrate the whole thing. Um, and we made some significant progress, and um, we were working with another person who uh, decided they did not want to be part of the project anymore. Not my buddy Nick. We're still thick right. as thieves, and we're still in this together. But this this third party decided they did not want to be involved. And because of that, I had to scrap a lot of work. I had spot illustrations. I had full page illustrations. I had full-blown pages of comics. I had a lot of work done on this. And all of it was essentially rendered unpublishable. Yeah. I can't show anybody this stuff, ever. And when that happened, that really took the wind out of my creative sales yes. for a while. And uh, at the at the time, like I didn't, I don't think I fully understood what was going on at the time. And this was like late 2020, early 2021. And if you look around that time, you can see me not drawing, not doing comics, but like sort of going in a different direction and putting out like a handheld retro gaming podcast and just sort of getting into something that really gave me joy and still wanting to produce something but like I needed a break from comics for a minute and after I produced the uh, it was always designed to be an eight episode podcast when I was done with that um, I, I started feeling the itch the need to get my hand moving again and that's when A Hunter's Tale came about. Oh, okay. It was during that time when you saw, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and right. George Floyd and all these things coming to a head during the pandemic. And that's when I was turning to my grandfather's poem for, for solace. And I felt like I have to do this and I have to I have to visualize this right now. And uh, I contacted my buddy, Nick, who's the co-writer on Coin-Op Carnival. And uh, I told him, I'm like, look, man, I, I know we want to be working on number two right now. But, like, I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling this certain way. Um, I, I, I hope you can get on board with this. 
and Nick, my best bud, is just a saint, and he's like, right. do it. I, I, I feel you. Uh, we'll get back to it. I know we will, and I'll be here when you're ready. And uh, I just I, I thank Nick so much for being such a fantastic friend. Um, so that's why we have A Hunter's Tale right now. Right. And, um, yeah, so there's kind of like the trajectory of how Point Up Carnival number two got derailed a little bit right. and my trajectory now but also my promise that Coin-Op Carnival will continue. That, that kind of adds to the Hunter's Tale, though. I never heard you this. That kind of changes the trajectory. To direct, I can't even talk. Trajectory? Um, yeah, thank, thank you, Rook. That, but, um, that, that way of moving. Yeah. <laughs> even though I talk over Rook, he still helps me out. But, um, <laughs> no, uh, that's, that's, that's really rich. That's nice to hear. And I, I do... I know Mal wants some more coin up carnival, so <laughs> tell him it's coming. I, I can't <laughs> promise it soon, but tell him it'll come. Right, I right. promise. <laughs> All right, Ryan. Where can everybody find you across the netosphere? <clears throat> All right. Well, right now I super want people to go to mirror drawings, mirror drawings, mirror drawings. If they could go to mirrordrawings.com, that is where I'm trying to focus my promotional might this month <laughs> so uh, I, I think that's where I'll, I'll start and leave it is mirrordrawings.com fantastic nice. alright uh, if anybody likes to draw we're always using fake comic book covers for the Facebook group and the Facebook page we can't pay you for it because we have no money but if you allow us to, we'll use it on those pages and we'll add it to the cover gallery of the blog. A lot of people enjoy these. I'm really happy when I get them. Um, they're fantastic. And you may not think you draw well, but everybody will enjoy them. Everybody feels that way. If you're any kind of singer, musician, um, I always bring up mime, but if you're a performance artist, if you can put it on an MP3, we have a music break except when we have a guest. Uh, Rook is always complaining to me that I keep playing the same people over and over again. So do me a favor, send, send something over. Same thing when I have gotten on people. Say, I don't know if you're going to like it. They've, everyone's we been will. fantastic. Yeah. And we have please, a t-shirt. Please send music. Make Stop Don. Stop Don. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and as we said, if you ever listen to the show... It doesn't have to be in English. It can be any kind of music you like. Um, we play it all. It's um, I've always said local musicians, but if you live on the planet Earth, it's local. local. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also have a T-shirt. It's on the sidebar of the blog. It's not to make us rich. It's just to help us with hosting fees. We have two different designs. Listen to the show. Wear the shirt. Rook. Everybody check us out. Bunchdorks.com and just click on that Cyclops. Until next time, read more comics. You can hear our most recent 20 episodes on iTunes. If you would like to hear our older episodes, you can find them on our blog. Just go to bunchofdorks.com and click, click on, on the Cyclops. True Dimension can be found on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe, rate, leave a review, Call a friend or like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening.